Welcome to Practical Christian Living. I love that it says here, be holy for I am holy. That's what God says. It's like he doesn't go into a big argument about why you should be holy, but he says, be holy because I am holy. The moment you gave your life to Christ, your sins were forgiven you and you were holy. And if now you've got certain sins in your life that you need to repent from and turn from, then just turn from them and be holy because God is holy. God doesn't expect us to become perfect when we begin following Him, but He does want us to become more and more holy. That is, set apart and different from this world because we belong to Jesus. Allow God, through the power of His Holy Spirit, to remove those things from your life that keep you from becoming more like Him. With more on living holy out of 1 Peter 1, 14 through 25, Here's Robert Furrow, pastor of Calvary, Tucson. Father, we do thank you for your word. It truly is alive and it is powerful. And we believe that our lives are transformed and changed by your word. And um, so we put our focus on what you say. And we don't want to know what men say about what your word says here. We want to know why you said it, what you meant when you said it, who you were saying it to, and um, what it meant to them that we can truly take your word, apply it in our lives, and be transformed by it. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Like many of the other epistles, Peter starts off by, first of all, showing who you are in Christ before he ever gets to conduct. And um, Galatians is that way. Ephesians is that way. James is that way. A lot of the other books are that way. They deal with who you are because you entered into a relationship with Christ. And then sometimes halfway through the book, it makes a shift like Ephesians. And then it deals with conduct. It deals with practicality. You go from your position in Christ to practicality. Well, that happens in chapter one of the book of first Peter. He starts off by talking to sojourners that we're traveling through and that we have an inheritance that is in heaven and it is incorruptible and who we are in Christ and that you and I have received a salvation that should bring joy to us and the prophets wrote about it and angels long and desire to look into it. And after establishing who we are, he then turns to our conduct. Because we are that, then there is a way that we should live. And that starts with verse 13 and verse 13 is a tremendous verse. It says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the promise of future grace to be given to you at the revelation of Jesus and that that should be your hope. Your hope shouldn't be put in, I don't know, social security. Your hope shouldn't be put into a 401k or a 503b or is it a 403b and a 501k. Now, whatever it is, I always say I'm wrong. Your hope shouldn't be in those things. Your hope shouldn't be in a job. Your hope and your security should be in Christ and what he has for us in the future. And that should be what drives us to live daily, what drives us to get out of bed, what drives us to do what God wants us to do because our hope is fully put upon him. And then he gets down to the details of our conduct in verse 14. He starts off by saying, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lust as in your ignorance. As obedient children, we are the children of God. 
And we don't want to be rebellious children that are seeking the things of this world, that are lovers of this world or lovers of the flesh, but seeking the things of God that we might be obedient children to him and not conforming ourselves to our former lusts. That is the things that we lived for before we came to Christ. Galatians chapter five tells us that, in, in fact, let's turn there. Galatians chapter five, verse 16. I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. I love this passage because it helps us to understand that the way for me to battle the lust of the flesh, if you're struggling with a stronghold in your life, some sinful activity you can't seem to get away from, the way to battle against it is to walk in the Spirit. Set your mind and your heart upon God. Delight yourself in the Lord. Draw close to Jesus. Abide in Him and His Word, and you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. It says in verse 16, So then I say, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, the end of verse 17, so that you do not do the things that you wish. Now, I wish it didn't say that, but it does. My Spirit battles against the flesh, and my flesh battles against the Spirit, so that I don't do the things that I wish. Paul put it in Romans chapter 7 this way, the very things that I want to do, I don't do. The very things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I end up doing. Anybody say amen to that? Oh, wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death, praise be to God. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we will have struggles. The Bible says in 1 John that if you say you don't have sin, you are a liar and you deceive yourselves. There's no one here that doesn't have it. So we don't do the things that we wish because of this struggle. And then he gives a list of the things of the flesh. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Evident means he doesn't have to go over them, but he goes over them anyway, which I think is kind of funny. The works of the flesh are evident. I could tell you what the works of the flesh are, and there's really no disagreement, although people will try to disagree on all kinds of levels. I have heard people justify every sin out there. I've had people justify adultery to me. I have had people justify getting high to me. I've had people justify getting drunk to me. I've had people justify every possible sin that you can think of, but they're still evident. There might be a person who says, no, fornication is okay, but the vast majority of believers say, no, it's not. It's evident is what he means. And the first three are sexual. He says, verse 19 again, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, and lewdness. Adultery is sex among married people. Fornication is sex outside of married people. Uncleanliness is any other kind of sexual sin. And lewdness is an attitude towards sexual things. Just being lewd. A few years ago, it became a popular thing for pastors to cuss in messages. I think they wanted their 15 minutes of fame. And we were living at that time, we've moved on to Instagram and other things, but we were living in that time in a YouTube world. And so if they cussed, then they would get on YouTube and they would get, I don't know, whatever they wanted, 80,000 clicks on YouTube of people listening to them cuss. So there were several pastors who began to do it. At the same time, in order to shock people, they began to talk lewdly about, crudely, lewdly about sexual things. They began to talk about their own personal sex lives, which to me is like, Guys telling their, their congregations what great sex them and their wives were having, which to me was like, are you kidding that you even bring these things into the pulpit, into what God wants to change people's lives with the word of God? So these things are evident. These are the things that we don't want to revert to in our, as in our former lives. And then he goes on. And there's categories for these other ones, but I'm just going to read them and listen to the, how broad this list is. Idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, fighting, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, 
selfish ambition, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and if that's not enough, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, of which I also told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's the practicing of those things. He says in the beginning, we don't do what we wish, but it's the practicing of those things. That you and I are practicing righteousness. We're not practicing the things of the flesh. Now turn back with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. And here he says in verse 14, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. So now Peter says, listen, as obedient children of God, don't conform yourself to your former lust, but be holy because God is holy. Now, holy has three different ideas to it. In the Old Testament, holiness has the idea of being complete. In the New Testament, holiness has the idea, the word holiness has the idea of being set apart. And holiness has three different ideas. First of all, it is, let's just call it purity. That to be holy is to be pure. If there's a person that is 100% pure and has no sin in their lives at all, that is a holy person. And God is holy. He is pure. There's no shifting of shadows in him. There's no darkness in him at all. There's not even a shifting of a shadow in God. Everything God does is the right thing to do. He is 100% righteousness. He does 100% the right thing. He never does that which is wrong. That's the holiness of God. Also is the idea not only of purity, but it's the idea of completeness, that you are complete when you are holy. You and I are complete. When we bring God into our lives, that's what completes us. Not the line in the Tom Cruise movie, the you complete me line. It's kind of a little gaggy, right? Renee Zellweger and Tom Cruise. I don't know if they've ever completed anybody. I don't know that any of us have ever completed anybody, by the way. But God is the one who completes us. And in that, we can become holy. So there's the idea of completeness and God is complete. He doesn't lack anything. So there's the purity aspect, there's the completeness, and then there's the set apart, that God is different. God is unique. God is above every other God, the Bible says, and there is no one like him. He is transcendent. He is different. You and I are to come out from among them and be different. We're to live different kinds of lives, and we are to be holy. Now, it says to be holy because God is holy. That's the reason. We could talk about a lot of benefits to holy living. The Bible says that he who doesn't have self-control uh, is like a man living without walls. It's like a city without walls. So a city without walls in their day was, was vulnerable. And a man without self-control or a man without integrity is like a city without walls. There's a lot of problems and difficulties and, that are brought into people's lives because of sin. And we could talk about that. But I love that it says here, be holy for I am holy. That's what God says. It's like he doesn't go into a big argument about why you should be holy. But he says, be holy because I am holy. The moment you gave your life to Christ, your sins were forgiven you and you were holy and if now you've got certain sins in your life that you need to repent from and turn from, then just turn from them and be holy because God is holy. Now he goes on to say, after that, be holy for I am holy. Verse 17, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's works, conduct yourself throughout the time of your stay here in fear. If you've called out to him and you've invited him into your life, then conduct yourself with fear. 
knowing that God's going to judge our works. Our works will be judged by him. We have been freed from judgment, but one day we will see him and we will see him in all of his glory. He is so awesome. He is so incredible that the Bible says now that if you could see God, if God appeared in all of his glory on this stage, all of us would be consumed in a moment because God is so awesome. People say today, well, I'm not afraid of God. I don't have the fear of the Lord. Well, as Yoda once said, you will be. Mm, you will be. Mm -hmm. That's right. Sorry. Just had to throw it in there. You will be. You want, when you see him in all of his glory, you will say, I have been foolish that I was not fearful of God. God is loving and God is merciful. God is tender and God is totally awesome. But do you know that the Bible also says God is terrible? Not terrible in the sense of something that's bad because we know that God is pure, but terrible in the sense of it is an awful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God, it says in the book of Hebrews. He will judge this world and we ought to conduct ourselves here with fear, knowing that, hey, our call, our work is not something to be played with. We're not involved in the game here. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. Boy, again, these verses are so packed. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things. The word redeemed means to be purchased back. So God bought you back. He created you and therefore he owned you and he gave you to your own choices. Some of you chose evil and some of you chose good. Some chose more evil. We all chose evil, I guess, in the beginning because we had the sin nature, but then we came back to him and then he redeemed us. But he didn't redeem us with silver and gold. How valuable are you to God? He redeemed you with the precious blood of Jesus. That's how valuable you are. Not with silver and gold, not with anything that perishes. And when I talk about your value, I think we could talk about two things. Number one, how valuable are you to yourself? The Bible says that a man will give everything he has for his soul. Your soul is the most important thing that you have. It is the most valuable. People have put a lot of time into houses and cars and things. But the most valuable thing that you have is your soul. Are things right with your soul? I'm not talking about self-esteem. Some people struggle with self-esteem, but that's not the main problem of mankind. Man's main problem is too much pride. Even when you struggle with self-esteem, it's that you think you ought to be, you know, better than you are. So it's really a pride issue. You say, I look in the mirror and I say, I hate myself. If you really had low self-esteem, you'd be happy you look the way you look. You'd say, you're ugly and I'm glad you're ugly. I hate you. <laughs> Bible says no one really hated themselves. They had hated their own flesh. You don't hate yourself. You love yourself. But the value often that we struggle with is the value that we have to God. What, what, what worth am I to God? Why does God need me? Why does God want me? God doesn't love me. God doesn't want me. He loves you so much that he redeemed you, not with corruptible things like silver and gold, from your aimless conduct. Before you came to Christ, it was just aimless conduct. You were just living your life for yourself. Maybe you thought you were living for other people, but it was aimless conduct. And he says, received by traditions from your fathers. Talking probably here about their religions before they came to Christ. For the Jews, it would be Judaism. But with the precious blood of Christ, how valuable is the blood of Christ? It is truly precious and valuable. It was able to pay for all the sins of all mankind. As a lamb without blemish and without spot, Jesus was the perfect lamb of God without blemish and spot, and he shed his blood for us that we could be 
redeemed. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. Now, verse 20 is um, a verse that throws us right into the middle of the idea of predestination. There are two extremes when it comes to the sovereignty of God or the predestination of God. There are those that believe that God has predestined man to do everything that man does. They believe that God is sovereign and that God in his sovereignty determines everything that men will do. On the other end, there are people who believe that God does not have foreknowledge, that God has kind of set things in motion and he's going through time with us and he can kind of a little bit determine what's going to happen, but he doesn't know what you're going to do next. A few years ago, my daughter was in school and she went to a Christian school and the teacher told her in the middle of a conversation about whether or not you could lose your salvation that she was an Arminianist. Well, we are not Arminianists. And so she argued with him a little bit and I finally called him up on the phone. I was kind of upset that he had told my daughter that. So I called him up and we began to talk about it. And he said that he believed that God had determined everything. And I said, God in his sovereignty gave man choice and men made decisions for good and for evil. And he said, no, God determined it. And I said, you're telling me that God determined every rape and every molestation and every evil thing that's happened out there? And he said, yes. And I said, I disagree with you. And if that's an Arminianist, then count me as an Arminianist. That's not Arminianism, by the way. But so there's that extreme. And I do not believe that God's sovereignty means that. On the other end, I was having lunch with the pastor here in town and, and one of his assistant pastors. We were talking about a doctrine that at the time was being taught in YWAM. I'm not saying YWAM believed this. I'm not, I don't know whether YWAM believed this. I don't know whether it was a broad teaching in YWAM. We were talking about this teaching that had been taught in YWAM at some point. And the teaching was is that God didn't really know what was going to happen or what I was going to do. That God was kind of just rolling with it. And when I did something, then God would respond to that. And so I started mocking it. I kind of like went, so God doesn't know if I'm going to pick up the glass of water. And it's like, that's what they're teaching. So I was like, whoop, I think God out. Whoop, God doesn't know. Okay, God, I picked it up. Oh, you didn't know. So I kind of did that. And then the assistant pastor of this church said to me, "Uh, I believe in that. So he was offended that I was mocking that. But the Bible says that God knows everything before it happens. I am God. I know the beginning from the end. One of the attributes of God is foreknowledge. He knows everything that will ever happen in the future. And so there's that extreme, and I disagree with that. And in the middle, I believe, is the truth. And that is that God is sovereign and that God gave, in his sovereignty, gave men choice. And when men choose not to do godly things, they entered into evil. And God didn't create the evil, but evil is a result of not being holy and not following the Lord. And so that when someone rapes or molests or murders, it's because they have chosen to walk away from God, not because God determined that those things would happen. It's like God is light. So when you invite him into your life, your life is light. When you remove God, there is darkness Darkness is God being removed. He didn't create darkness. Darkness is the result of God not being there. He didn't create evil. Evil is the result of God not being there. Now, to me, I believe in the sovereignty of God. In other words, if God determines something's going to happen, even in my life, if God determines that something's going to happen in my life, there is nothing that I am going to do to stop that from happening. The Bible says it is appointed once for men to die and then comes judgment. I have an appointment with God. If Jesus doesn't come back before I die, I have an appointment with him. And one day I will die and go to be with the Lord. And that's God's sovereignty. 
He appointed it for me. There's nothing I can do to change it. And all of my free will, all of my choices that I get to make in my life won't change that. So we will, in our free will, choices that we have run into God's sovereignty. God has determined that there is a day when Jesus will return. The Bible says, interestingly enough, that God moved that day forward. Did you know that? There was a time that he wanted Jesus to come back. But the Bible says that unless God had shortened the days, no flesh would remain on the earth. Men would destroy mankind completely. People are afraid today that there'll be a nuclear holocaust or some other kind of maybe disease or, or bio-warfare that'll wipe out all flesh. You know what? It's not an unwarranted fear. It'll happen if God doesn't intervene and come back earlier than what he wanted to. He wanted to be merciful and allow a certain date, but he had to move it forward. But there's a day set by him that Jesus will return. Nothing will change him. Nothing that men do. God in his sovereignty has set that date. There could be personal things in your life, other personal things that God has set up in his sovereignty and, and that can't be changed. But within the realm of your decisions, God allows you to be able to make decisions and sometimes you'll run into the sovereignty of God. That's why the Bible says, choose you this day whom you will serve. He's not just playing games. Well, I'm gonna tell you, you've got a choice, but you don't really have a choice. He's not saying whosoever can come, but not really, I'm just kidding. That's not whosoever can come. When God says those things, he means those things because God in his sovereignty allowed man to make a choice. If you say that God is so sovereign that he can't give men choice, and I say that God is so sovereign that he gives men a choice, then God is more sovereign to me than a God that you say can't give men choice. I was talking to someone about this a couple of years ago now. And uh, he said to me, well, then you're making yourself sovereign. What? There's some kind of nonsensical arguments that are argued. I know I'm not sovereign. By saying that God in his sovereignty has given me choice, that's not making myself sovereign. I know I'm not sovereign. I can't even get my adult children to do what I want them to do. I can't get my grandchildren to do what I want them to do. I can't get myself <laughs> to do what I want myself to do all of the time. I know I'm not sovereign, but I believe that God is sovereign. And I believe that when God makes those decisions, they are set in stone. And when God determines something to happen, it will happen. And so there's two words in chapter one in 1 Peter that are words that are similar, gnosis and gnosko. And gnosis is in verse two, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. In verse 20 is the other word. He indeed was foreordained before the foundations of the world. And so people want to play on those words, foreordained and foreknown, that God foreordains and God foreknows. The truth is, is that both of these words have nosco in it. The word nosco is to know. Both of them have the idea of God knowing. Yes, God foreordained that Jesus would go to the cross and die for our sins. It's not just foreknowledge. Yes, God knows the decisions that you and I make. And because of that, it says, Romans 8, 29, whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God knew the decision you would make and God predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. It doesn't say that he predestined everything in your life and all of your decisions. It says, whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So in verse 20, when it says that he was foreordained, I think that's correct. It was foreordained that Jesus would go to the cross and die for us. But God knew exactly what would happen. God the Father knew exactly what would happen. And it says that this was set up before the foundations of the world and was manifest in these last times. God's determined times, God's sovereignty, 
like the day that Jesus will return, will one day come to pass. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.